Welcome back to the channel. Welcome back to Plenary Session. For those of you listening on the audio feed, I encourage you, this one, you're going to want to jump on the video. Get to YouTube. Check this out on Vinay Prasad, MD, MPH, the channel. And for those of you watching the video, you'll be glad you watched because I have a lot of visuals. I'm going to talk about this study, the talk of the town, Echelon 1. We finally have what has been long awaited, the overall survival results for AAVD versus ABVD. It's AAVD, that A is adcetris, or brentuximab vidotin. It used to be ABVD, and this is the trial that supposedly changed our practice. It has huge financial implications. It has huge implications for all of Hodgkin's lymphoma, and I'm going to break down this paper. I have read this paper and poured through it for two to three hours, and I feel like it's still not enough. It's still not enough. I want to do more, but... A bunch of people who I uh, admire have asked me to put the video out there. Put the video. Tell me what you got so far. So I'll tell you what I got so far. But I want to look at it even harder. And I might do that in the future if I find something else. Oh, the next thing. Somebody asked me, if I listen to Plenary Session or I listen to one of your videos and uh, you make a good point and I want to use that in an article of mine, should I cite you? And the answer is... Yes, of course, you should cite. I mean, what are you talking about? Yeah, you shouldn't take an idea and uh, pretend it's your own if you heard it somewhere else. So yes, of course, you cite. You can cite a podcast just like you can cite anything else. That's a simple question. Okay, here we go. Overall survival with BV. I think I'm going to tell you things you don't know. So I think this may even be relevant. So many authors, so many authors, and they're all such, you know, giants in the field. They're, they're onc live giants of oncology, in fact, probably many of them. We will see what so many authors has led to. Before we start, I think it's important to remember the original letters to the editor in Echelon 1. This is the 2018 publication. This was a letter to the editor by John Greer. The wholesale cost of rentuximab vidotin for a single cycle in adult is estimated to be twenty-eight dollars to $34,000, or up to $200,000 per course. Pegfilgastrim, or, or, or pegylated uh, uh, GCSF, uh, is $14,000 per cycle, or $84,000 per course. It's come down a little bit. In the United States, the cost of therapies often tripled, so the price of six cycles could be as high as $800,000 or more than 100 times the projected cost of ABVD. Um, and of course, you should remember, pegylated filgastrim is permitted according to the protocol amendment in this study. So he says, despite the results of these trials, it's not clear that this should be the new standard of care. And I think it's really important what he's highlighting is that if this is the new standard of care, it is going to explode costs. I mean, it's going to explode costs because ABVD is very, very cheap. And AAVD is a lot more expensive. It's Seattle Genetics. First, first success story. First success story. So I kind of disagree with this figures a little bit. And you may remember this paper. If you follow this channel, I think I talked about it at the time. This is a Satish Shonbag uh, and myself. We wrote... Brentuximab vidotin for frontline Hodgkin's lymphoma. How much will a successful trial cost patients and payers? And we discussed this very important issue. We have our own calculation that we offer, assuming, you know, BSA of 1.79, assuming average wholesale price at the time, assuming pegfilgastrim is added because of the neutropenia that can result from AAVD. Um, and, you know, I think this is probably more realistic than $800,000, $280,000 with a cost of a BVD of something like $4,000. I'm, I'm, I'm going to say, for the sake of my arguments, it's a 280K premium. It's a 280K premium to get AAVD. Now, we will come back to this, and we will revisit the cost issue as I get to the end of this video. These are the results. Staggering overall survival results, you know? 
That is, uh, in fact, a difference between the curves. You know, you can see it. It is a difference. And there are 39 deaths in one arm and 64 deaths in the other arm, and it's one-to-one -one randomization. That hazard ratio for death is 0.6. This will be the first drug in Hodgkin's lymphoma that's shown overall survival benefit as, uh, as far as I can remember. As far as I can remember. Um, I'm trying to think, is there another example? This might be the first one I can remember in a long time. Certainly in the front line. As long as my, beyond my life, a, a, a BVD is older than me, you know? So this would be a stagger, this is a staggering result. And we're going to have to talk about how do you interpret this result. And I think it's going to hinge on one question. And that's a question that we'll see if we can get the answer to. This is from the original publication. In the original publication, let's not forget, let's get a sense of when these deaths occurred. There were 28 deaths in the AAVD group. And there was 39 deaths in the ABVD group. 13 were during treatment. Nine were during treatment. There's an imbalance, I think, in deaths during treatment. And I have taken the liberty of breaking this out. I busted out the Excel spreadsheet. You know, I have to say, if you're reading this publication without an Excel spreadsheet, then I wonder how, how deep you could be reading it. Because you need the Excel spreadsheet to kind of pull some numbers out and, and, and to look at it. And as you see, it proves itself to be invaluable. During treatment, there is about a half a percentage point difference in the risk of death, you know. So AAVD is already out to a head start. Now, other people, Jim Armitage and others, uh, many years ago, wrote in ASCO Post that they worry that this imbalance in death on treatment is due to somehow, you know, some inadequate, inadequate monitoring of the patients on treatment because deaths on treatment are very, very rare. And even though this trial includes people over the age of 60, it is very, very rare, rare to die on treatment for Hodgkin's lymphoma. They worried that what was happening here is that they're giving everybody a, a BVD, even though some of these people over the age of 60, we wouldn't even try to give bleo, but they're giving it and they're getting pneumonitis and death and they're not doing DLCOs and monitoring very carefully. And that's what they, that's what Jim Armitage worried about. But I just want to point out that, you know, at every kind of step along the way that there is an imbalance that favors their arm, which gives them the advantage ultimately. And so there is an imbalance during treatment. Then in the original paper, they did report maybe a one percentage point difference in death. And that was in the original follow-up period. Since then, we know that that has extended even further. It's grown to be about a 2.1 percentage point um, uh, difference in the subsequent time interval. So it's kind of getting a little bit further apart. And all of this accounts for, I think, that 3.7 percentage point difference in death between the two arms of the study. This is where it comes from. It comes from on treatment, original publication, and extended follow-up, which is just deepening it. But it, it really started quite early. Now, I think it's important, and we'll come back to this point, to look at the risk of death if you're under the age of 60, where many, many Hodgkin's lymphoma trials restrict themselves to 18 to 60, or over the age of 60. In this study, there was a substantive proportion of people over the age of 60, um, 84 and 102 to be precise in, in the two arms of the study. Now, those people had a huge risk of death in the follow-up of this study. About a quarter of them were dead. They were dead at high numbers, and there's a difference about 4.6 percentage points between the two arms. Among the people less than 60, there was a 2.9 percentage point difference in death between the two arms, and if you pull all that together, you get that 3.7 percent difference in death. Here, I have AAVD, the number of people, ABVD, the number of people, the number of deaths, and the number of deaths in the two categories, and above them in the numerator is the number of people unique to that category. You can pull this all out from the forest plot and from the publication. 
What were the causes of deaths? Now, one of the big worrisome causes of death is it's not all Hodgkin's lymphoma. 32 out of 39 deaths were Hodgkin's lymphoma. 45 out of 64 deaths were Hodgkin's lymphoma. But secondary malignancy is decimating the ABBD arm. The secondary malignancy is decimating, and that's probably why that doesn't happen on treatment, doesn't even happen in the early follow-up. That's probably why with even more follow-up, those secondary malignancy deaths are pulling those two curves apart, and that's how they're going to get that OS benefit, which raises a number of questions, which is, is aggressive, you know, six cycles of ABVD in even older people, 60 and up, contributing to excess mortality. Could you have gotten away with ABVD two cycles and then sort of a Rathol protocol, AAVD, sorry, AVD for the rest of them, minimizing bleomycin, and then you have lower death from Hodgkin's lymphoma? You know, I just want to point out one thing. Some people say that ABVD cannot be more toxic and cannot have more long-term deaths than ABVD two cycles followed by AVD in PET negative uh, in Rathal or a Rathal protocol and, and possibly escalated be a cop if you're PET positive because in Rathal um, there was no difference in overall survival. I think that's technically incorrect, okay? You know, Rathal had a certain amount of power to judge non-inferiority for a certain primary endpoint, which was really about relapse, and it doesn't have enough power to exclude a meaningful difference in overall survival, especially with long-term follow-up, which I haven't really seen something very, very long-term from Rathal. Um, and, and so I'll put that, to put that all another way, it is entirely possible, entirely plausible, that ABVD pushing through six cycles even in, old pe in older people may have some secondary death down the road that is worse than had you tried to minimize the bleomycin, either by minimizing bleo at the outset or minimizing bleo along the way if they're pet negative at two. Secondary malignancy plays a key role, and I think that um, that that this that AAVD is bit, is better than ABVD in this study in part because of that secondary malignancy difference and death from that, and I think that that might even deepen in, in years to come. These were the results in terms of progression-free survival. There were 112 progression-free survival events in one arm, and there was a five, and 159 in the other arm. 159 in the other arm. ABVD has a ratio for death or progression 0.68. That's what we find here. I'm, I'm just getting to the good stuff. Oh, I did a little calculation, which was, you know, a lot of people were like, uh, oh, let's compare this to HD10. Let, or sorry, HD18. Let's compare this to Rathal. Let's compare, is the overall survival in the control arm worse? And then other people point out, but, you know, here you have such a high proportion of people over the age of 60. Rathal, of course, excludes them. HD18, of course, excludes them. Rathal and HD18 also include some people who are stage two. HD18 includes like the worst of the worst stage two. So they might actually do worse than you would want. They're not like even a typical three, perhaps. Um, you know, so there's all this kind of stuff. So I was like, can we actually get an apples to apples comparison? So here I extrapolate uh, uh, the death rate in under 60 to those over 60, assuming the same rates and asking what might happen to the overall death rate. And of course, the difference will be more muted. It'll be a, it's all over on the far right. It'll be a 2.8% if the death in greater than 60 occurred at the same rate as under 60. Um, and and then, then this can give you a sense, a five or six year OS um, in, in, in the uh, ABVD arm is going to be something in the, in the 93, 94 percentage point ballpark, perhaps. Uh, and, and, and one might argue that that is actually um, more or less comparable to, to other estimates. Uh, here, of course, in Echelon 1, they point out that the pet positive people, you know, uh, they had a, um, a hazard ratio for death. They had a hazard rate. They, have a, they were only alive 77% of the time if they're pet positive down the road at six years, you know which is notable. Uh, this is, of course, the Rathal findings. This is, of course, not of course, this is a analysis that takes Rathal 
and extrapolates it to a real-world data set in the United Kingdom, which is labeled RW, to kind of show that the real-world survival is a 93%, but Rathal was 95%. So I guess the argument would be, is ABVD underperforming in Echelon 1? Uh, it's within a percentage point or two, I think, of what you would get if you, if you had applied, if it, what, you, what, what Rathal was getting. It's, it's almost what a real-world cohort is getting. But a real-world cohort should not be compared to a trial because real-world cohort includes older, frailer, sicker people than trial patients. You know, so it's a, it's a little bit of an apples and orange comparison. And then HD18, just for the sake of comparison, of course, let's not forget, stage two with B symptoms and one or more risk factors include large mediastinal mass and maximum thoracic, with a certain maximum thoracic diameter of more than a third of the, of the diaphragm, um, or extranodal lesions. You know, those include an HD18. HD18 had sort of a pooled overall five-year OS of... Uh, 95.6%. So is it is HD18 better than what you're getting in Echelon 1? Ultimately, I think you just can't do this. I mean, we are we are all within 3 or you know, 2 to 3 or 4 percentage points. These are very different cohorts, very different um, study designs. Uh, I think a very different enrolling nations. I think it's uh, it would be a fool's errand to make any conclusions about, and even to compare the AAVD arm to any of these arms and say, well, it's better in comparison. These kind of comparisons are fraught. Let's go back in time and remember the difference between the original NCI experience with Promacytobom and then the ultimate Rick Fisher 93 randomized control trial of CHOP and Promacytobom. You're talking huge differences in OS and huge differences in CR rates, even double-digit percentage point differences that were all obliterated in head-to-head -head randomization. Here you're talking about just a few percentage points. I think it's very difficult to make any firm conclusions here, and I would reject this line of inquiry. I would reject this line of inquiry uh, outright. There's another line of inquiry. The line of inquiry and the key issue of this paper, the core issue of this paper is, I mean, I think there's two core issues. One is the modified PFS and two is the post protocol. When you run a randomized control trial and your primary endpoint is PFS, PFS may not predict living longer or living better, but the one thing PFS has as a virtue is it is only dependent on the therapies that were prescribed on protocol. It's only dependent on treatment prior to the progression event. What happened after the progression couldn't have affected the progression. I think that's, that's the way time works. I mean, I don't know what to say. That's the way time works. So when you look at endpoints downstream of PFS, like overall survival, then suddenly everything you do to somebody whose disease wasn't cured the first time matters a great deal. And the real question is, in a study where one, in, in this study, is, is the control arm getting the adequate standard of care in the nations that Echelon 1 seeks to change practice in? And that's the United States and, most of, and parts of Western Europe. The nations that can pony up the price tag of $280,000. Is the post-protocol care in this study representative of our post-protocol care? And that is a core issue. If they're giving delinquent, negligent post-protocol care here, then Echelon 1 does not affect the practice in this country. It does not. It should be discarded. And the whole trial and the author should be humiliated for running a very costly, useless study if it doesn't. If it does represent the standard of care in the United States, by the way, there's a simple way they could have done that. They could have run it as a U.S.-only study. But, you know, for other reasons, they don't want to do that. Uh, but if it does represent the standard of care in the U.S., then it is potentially practice-changing albeit with that asterisk about let's talk about cost and value. 
When you saw the original Echelon 1 publication, this is a 2018 supplementary appendix, these were the post-protocol therapies, and this was the reason why people like me were ready to pounce. Because when I looked at this original subsequent therapy study, these are the people who failed to achieve CR after induction, after sort of initial treatment. The ABVD arm, yeah, they're getting DHAP, they're getting ICE, they're getting, you know, ICE and then auto. Um, they're getting a little bit of rituximab, rituximab, rituximab and Benda. That's an interesting rituximab. That's very, very interesting. Why are they getting the rituximab? <laughs> they're getting the rituximab, sure. But what they're not getting a lot of is, uh, is, is brentuximab-bidotin, which was the standard of care in the United States uh, prior to the study. What they are not getting a lot is BB, BB. And then, you know, one can wonder how many of them are getting uh, Athera BV post-auto, uh, post the, the Craig Moskowitz paper. But when I looked at this the first time, I was like, ah, I think the problem with OS in this study is going to be that all the people progressing on ABVD are going to get older cytotoxic drugs. They may not, I don't even know if they're going to have access to stem cell transplant in CR2, uh, uh, I'm not gonna. I'm not even sure they're gonna have access to stem cell transplant, and so that, that control arm is really gonna suffer in a post-protocol way. That's what I thought when I saw the original study. When I see this new study result, I zoomed to the supplementary appendix and I found table S7, and I looked at it, and I think some people have uh, even commented that they, they say that this looks pretty good. This looks pretty good. Rituximab, vidotin, and chemotherapy is being given to 108. You know, 108. People are getting that, brentuximab, and chemotherapy. Look at all that brentuximab, 49 people getting brentuximab, brentuximab, chemo, brentuximab, nevo, nevo. These are all acceptable standards of care. High-dose chemo transplant. This is looking really good. It's looking really good. Well, the first thing I noticed was, what the hell is going on here? Boom, boom, boom. That's the first thing I noticed. 135 people who got AAVD are getting at least one subsequent anti-cancer therapy. And 157 people who got ABVD are getting at least one subsequent anti-cancer therapy. But I remembered from the PFS figure that only 112 people had progression-free survival events in AAVD. And some of those events might have been death. In fact, we know that maybe that's because they were on treatment. Those people aren't eligible for further treatment. So it's smaller than 112, the number of people who progressed and have like progressive lymphoma. And yet the number of people who are getting subsequent anti-cancer therapy is 135. It's higher. It's higher than the number of people who've progressed ineligible for therapy. And then the other arm kind of made sense. 159 people have progressed or died, but 157 are getting subsequent therapy. 157 are getting subsequent therapy. But of the 159, some of them have died. So already, who are these people getting subsequent therapy? That, you know, who are these people? There's, it's more than the number of people who've progressed. Okay, so that's the first, the first point. Now you'll say, well, there's a good explanation for that. And the good explanation for that is, is the modified PFS, which I'll come back to, that some of these people are getting radiotherapy for uh, Doval 3 end of, end of treatment PET with RT, even the absence of histologically proved lymphoma. And that is scored as a modified PFS event that's included as an anti-cancer therapy, but that is not actually a PFS event. And that's the discrepancy. Okay, I hear you. I hear you. Obviously, I thought about this already. And I have looked into that hypothesis, and I'll give you some information there. But first, the more I looked at this, then I looked at this table. And the more I looked at this table, the more I realized, oh, there's some problems in this table. There's so many authors, and they're so smart and so successful. 
but there's so many problems in this table. Let me show you the problems. Number one, immunotherapy in ABVD arm. They say 28 people got immunotherapy. It's bolded and pulled out left. And in the subset of immunotherapy, they say BV and nivolumab. Well, that's immunotherapy. Of course, I got the Nevo, Nevo, Pembro, Nevo combination. Obinutuzumab. Obinutuzumab is not exactly my go-to second-line drug in Hodgkin's lymphoma because I'm not an idiot, okay? That's a, obviously, a, a, I don't know why anyone would be giving that. It's probably being done in some clinical trial setting or some resource scare setting. This is obviously, obviously madness. Can we agree? Obinutuzumab, single agent, OB. You know, previously people were giving me a hard time about chlorambucil OB, which is, of course, a hot dog of chlorambucil with the caveat of OB on top for CLL, but OB for Hodgkin's lymphoma, how many times have you been given that? Okay, let's, let's put that aside. So OB is ridiculous. And I'm not even going to count OB as the immunotherapy, but I'm just going to add up. BV Nevo, 4. Nivolumab, 18. Pembro, 6. That's 28. But the Nevo combination, 1. That's 29. So already there's, okay, how did you get the 28 then? You said 28 got immunotherapy, but if you just add those up, they're getting immunotherapy and you're already at 29. Okay. Now, the top part of it is individuals who got some treatment. The bottom part of it is the treatments given. And they're saying 28 people were getting at least these treatments, but you're already at 29. I mean, it's a little bit strange to me. I mean, I don't understand the math. But, but the more you look at it, the more the math really falls apart. Let's look at this. 78 people got brintuximab, vidotin, and chemotherapy regimens. Let's just add those up in the table. Eight of them got brintuximab, vidotin, monotherapy. Two of them got brintuximab, vidotin, and chemotherapy. 44 of them got high-dose chemotherapy and a transplant. Zero of them that arm got BV and nivolumab. And then let's just say, let's just count that before you get an aloe, you're probably getting some quote-unquote cytotoxic chemotherapy. Let's just say, you know, we'll count those too um, because they're going to need to try to get the numbers up. And then chemo and RT, let's count that too. One. So you got eight plus two plus 44 plus four plus one. You got 59. How do you get 78 out of 59? How did you get to 78? There's no way to get to 78 here. There's nothing there that could get you to 78. The more I'm still looking to see, is there anything that can get you 78? You need another 19. Where are you getting those 19? You don't, there's just, there's not even there. I mean, you can't count Nevo by itself. That's not, that's not a chemotherapy regimen or Brotexbevidotin. Pembro Nevo? Are you counting all those? Could you be? That makes no sense. And chemo regimens. That makes no sense. So, I mean, you're not getting to that number. There's something strange there about this calculation. The next point. Let's look at 108, okay? Even if you were to somehow say, if you can add up, we'll count Nevo as a chemo, which it isn't. Pembro as a chemo, which it isn't. Nevo combination as a chemo, which it isn't. Maybe it's in combination with chemo. So I'll give you another one, get you to 60. Even if you add up all that and you try to make sense of this number, this number doesn't make a lot of sense. 108. 108 people got brintuximab, vidotin, and chemotherapy. Let's just add that up. 49 got brintuximab, vidotin, monotherapy. 20 got brintuximab, vidotin, and chemotherapy. 59 got high-dose chemotherapy and transplant. Four of them got BV and Nevo. Uh, and then 12 got aloe transplant. To be fair, you'd have to count the aloe. And four got chemo-RT. You add all that up, you get to 148, not 108. And if you lose the aloe entirely and say that doesn't count as chemo, even though probably some of them are getting beam or I would assume, or, or, or flu or sorry, not beam. Uh, they're, they're getting some induction chemotherapy. If you lose aloe, you're still down to 136. 136, not 108. In fact, there's no way to, I mean, I urge anyone to explain to me how you're getting 78 and 108 out of these numbers. But this is, this is just a part of how it starts to, like this makes just table just makes no sense. 157 people are getting treatment, but if you add up all these numbers, you get 173 treatments. This exceeds that. And so the more you look at this table, 
the more I really think it just doesn't make any sense at all. And they have so many authors and nobody is pointing out that how you get, how the hell are you getting these numbers? How the hell are we getting these numbers? How the hell are we putting this in the supplement? The number one question somebody who reads this study is going to ask is when people progressed on A, B, V, D, what the hell did they get? It's not a surprise question. It's the number one question that you're going to ask. And I look at this table and I have no clue what they're getting. The numbers don't make any sense. Even the 28, you, I mean, how do you not even get the 28 to add up? Okay, that goes to 29. I don't get it. That's not 78. That's not 108. What is going on? Okay. I think there's something going on here. Let me focus on these numbers, 135 and 157. These are individual patients who have at least one subsequent anti-cancer therapy. And the first point I want to remember I want to remember is that there's only 112 and 159 PFS events. And some of those events are death. We know them to be death. And so that those people are not eligible for subsequent therapy because they're dead. And it is very difficult for an oncologist to continue to administer therapy in that situation. I will say for the record, it's very difficult, but okay. The number of people who are getting subsequent therapy on AAVD are 135 and the number of people getting it at 157 and the number of events are 112, 159. Now, the only way for this to kind of make sense, the only way for this to make sense is, if you remember, the original Echelon 1 study, where in the breakdown of the primary endpoint of modified PFS, the investigators who did the stupid, it's such a stupid decision. It's a stupid decision that made the whole, make so much of it, this very hard to interpret. They made that if at the end of your, at the end of all your treatment, you scan the person and they were Doval three, four or five on, on PET and you blasted them with radiation without a biopsy, that's scored as a modified PFS event, even if they may not have even had like residual Hodgkin's lymphoma. And they give you the breakdown of the PFS endpoint there. The number of people who, you know, disease progression was 73 versus 103. Death from any cause was 15 and 22. And subsequent anti-cancer therapy when CR was not achieved at frontline therapy. In other words, the pet was still a little bit warm and you got a little nervous and you blasted them with RT, 35, 39. And if you put this in a table, what you basically find is that 59, 60% of the modified PFS event is progression. About 10% is death. And so keep that in mind when you think of that 112, 159. Um, and 28%, about a quarter of the PFS, the original PFS event is uh, radiation therapy, I think, for what I call a BS reasons. So, so still, you know, still has uptake. This gives you a ratio, I think, of a PFS event to a modified PFS event of about 1.39, 1.4 to 1.3. So in other words, if the PFS occurs in 100 people, the modified PFS event should occur in 140 people or 130 people on average across the two arms of the study if the original trial publication results hold forward in the future. Okay, that's my thought here. Uh, what do I find? Well, when I look at the ratio of 135 to 112, that 135 people are getting, um, you know, uh, that 135 people are getting some subsequent anti-cancer th therapy, and even though 112 people have progressed on a AVD, that's a ratio of about 1.2, which means that, th that some of those people are getting RT at the end of therapy, um, and, and that accounts for why more people are getting subsequent anti-cancer treatment than actually progressing because they're getting that RT as part of that modified PFS protocol amendment 1.2. But when you do the same calculation with 159 and 157, it's about one. You know, you see that it's one. They don't have that excess, the excess number of people getting the RT for the modified PFS event. And it should be about 1.180. 
It should be about 30 more people. So what do I think is going on here? I think, I think that all of this is working to hide. They're, I think they are hiding. I will say they are hiding what is actually happening in these studies. On this table that you see right now, radiation occurred in 54 and 54 people. I think most of those people have not had a progression event. It it's certainly in the AAVD arm, they couldn't have had a progression event and they're getting blasted at the end for just that sort of BS pet positive CT results. Um, they haven't had a PFS event. They're getting radiation at the end. It's being scored as an anti-cancer therapy in the future. You read this and you think, wow, 157 out of 159 people are getting anti-cancer therapy after they progress. That's really good. They're giving really good anti-cancer. But no, 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 no. That 157, it should be like 188 because some of these people are not progressed yet. They're getting radiation before they've even progressed. Now that they progress, what the hell do they get? And you don't know because none of the numbers add up. None of the numbers add up. Now back to my final point. No, second, penultimate point. If you compare the original Echelon 1 table on the left to the subsequent anti-cancer therapy on the right, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. In the beginning, in the original trial publication, they were just getting so much cytotoxic drugs, very little BV, very little stem cell transplant. Now suddenly they're getting a lot of BV, a lot more BV than they were in the beginning. What do I think happened? It's hard. One has to speculate, but it is possible, is it not, that the trial investigators know that if they don't have BV being given to the control arm, it's going to forever be used to taint their study. And it's possible that eventually, for somebody relapsing, they eventually give them some BV at the end of their cancer journey. And it's possible that that is being used to increase the BV numbers here in the subsequent therapy line, even though that wasn't BV given when you ought to have given BV and when we would have given BV in the United States in the subsequent lines. We wouldn't be giving it in the fourth or fifth line potentially after the obinutuzumab, I don't know. Uh, so it's a feeling I have, but there is a simple thing, and maybe I'm going to write it up. The simple thing I'm going to write up is to say, it is... You have, a, you have a duty, you trialists, to communicate information that allows other people to interpret your study. Your duty is not to obfuscate, to hide, or to, to cloud your study results. You have a number of discrepancies in your table. You have a number of discrepancies. This doesn't add up to 108. This doesn't add up to 78. These numbers don't add up to 28. Uh, and, and even the number of people getting anti-cancer therapy and the number of people progressing, there's discrepancies there. And the ratio of anti-cancer therapy to progression is different in the two arms, suggesting, I think, horrific undertreatment upon progression in the ABVD arm. That would be my guess is what's going on. Y you've muddled the whole thing. Nobody can interpret what you've done. There are many, many authors. No, nobody has pointed out, in the, in, in, and there are many peer reviewers. There's the editors in the journal. Nobody's pointed out that these numbers don't even add up. They don't even add up. They don't, they don't even have basic arithmetic going on here, which suggests that I think there's a great deal of obfuscation going on here. And my first question is, I think it's incumbent to say, how many people progressed and were still alive? Okay, how many people progressed and died? Among the people who progressed and were still alive, how many of them got the first line of treatment, what did they get? Second line of treatment. This whole standard practice of lumping in all the lines of treatment so one person can contribute six data points while, while five people die, um, this, and, and then it's, it's scored as six out of six get anti-cancer treatment, this is bullshit. You need to report line by line so that we can, at, we can interrogate whether or not your study is actually up to snuff. And right now, you have obfuscated the whole thing. Uh, I think there are serious deficiencies here. Um, and, you know, ultimately, the, 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 I mean, the, I think the blame partly lies with the other authors. I mean, you've got to look at your own study and, like, look through it if you're putting your name on something. Um, 
yeah, I think that that's simple. I mean, there's so many people on this study. Manuscript okay to submit. I mean, that's, you got to do more than that. And the New England Journal, what what is going on? Who are your reviewers? They're picking people who you know just want to get this out there. And, you know, aren't really very good critical readers. Okay. The last point I want to make here is the, is the point about cost. Now, I remember I showed you this on treatment, post-treatment, you know. Um, let's just say, you know, we're talking about a 280K per person premium of AAVD. This is why this matters so much. The number needed to treat by the study, you know, you're talking about 27. So we're basically talking about $7.5 million to an averted event. Uh, they're going to say that some of that is offset by post-protocol therapy. Is it? What is the post-protocol therapy? How costly is it? You have a lot of missing data there. Um, but 7.5 million, I think what will be more interesting is to look at this in uh, people um, under the age of 60 and over the age of 60 with the different number needed to treat. Um, and, and basically what you find, it's something like $9 million to avert a death under 60. So uh, even though that they'll have many years of life, presumably to recoup that, $6 million over 60, uh, I think that's going to be a real uphill battle. Um, so for somebody saying that this is the de facto standard of care in an older person because we can't give them bleo, I think, you know, um, you're still talking a big price tag for that. And honestly, honestly, you haven't tested yourself against a rattle strategy. You haven't, you know, you haven't really uh, seen what might happen to an older person who didn't get uh, flogged, perhaps excessively. I mean, most likely excessively with bleo. Um, this is not dollar per quality, to be fair. Dollar per quality is a more complex analysis. I'm sure the company, uh, the company, uh, 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 the company will contract some group to do it, and, uh, and well, of course, it'll be like uh, four academic authors, all of the employees of the company, a few people who work for the consulting firm, and then two academic authors will will do the cost effectiveness <laughs> analysis. Uh, and even if you do an independent one, it's going to be very difficult because you don't have all the post protocol therapies. How can you model it? And you can say, ironically. When you do your cost effectiveness analysis, you'll use like the best available U.S. post-protocol therapy, which there, which will actually like uh, increase the cost upon progression, which will make their drug have a more favorable cost effectiveness ratio. But ironically, they didn't do that, and and that's probably what it took to get the positive OS benefit. So those are my thoughts on Echelon One First Pass. Already while talking to you, I um, thought of some other things I should have said. I mean, I think it is um, it's a really bad state. It is very bad in medicine that um, one, you know, uh, many people are going to blindly um, uh, parrot this result without even looking at it. Uh, I've looked at it for three hours, uh, and I feel like that's even barely enough. Uh, it's barely enough time to even put some preliminary thoughts together. Uh, and I'm somebody very practiced in this. I mean, this is something I do a lot. I, I mean, I'm practiced in this. Um, and, and, you know, it'll still take me maybe a few more hours, and later I'll, I'll, I'll push, pull on some other threads there. Um, that's part of it. That's part of the problem. The financial implications of this are huge. They're vast. I mean, we're talking about frontline Hodgkin's lymphoma. We're talking about a huge amount of population. We have the ongoing ECOG group that tacitly has endorsed brintuximabidotin by having the A-NEVO VD study going against A-AVD study when they should have had a third arm of ABVD. Um, in a in a, in, in a regular world, even if these results were pristine, I think many people would say the cost alone, um, the, the fact the conduct was done globally, um, uh, should justify a second confirmatory study. I think many people would say that that would be very reasonable. 15, 20 years ago, you go back in time, totally this, the, the de rigueur of drug development would be a confirmatory study. Now, of course, we're in the everybody getting paid by pharma kind of piece of the, of the, of the pie. And uh, now I think 
it would be very difficult to do a confirmatory study. That said, in the absence of the confirmatory study, which by the way, I think if you're in, if you're in European Union, if you're, if you're the Germans, you should do it. You should do it. You should take whatever regiment you want, like an HD 18, or you should take, uh, you know, I know you don't like the ABBD. Y'all are, y'all push it too hard. If you're in the UK, if you're in those groups, you should, you should try to do a replication study. Um, I think you have different opportunities there. But if you don't, we need to have full, transparent, subsequent lines of therapy. I need to be able to see all these people, who is getting the RT at the end? That shouldn't be coded as a subsequent anti-cancer therapy. That's just getting RT to clean up some pet positivity and probably you don't even need it anyway. Uh, that was going to fade with a little bit of time and observation. Then I want to know who is really progressing. And of the people progressing, how many are getting one therapy, two therapies, three therapies? And what are those therapies line by line? Are they getting auto? Are they getting uh, obinutuzumab? Are they getting rituxin? <laughs> Sorry, rituxan, OB, all this stuff, you know, what, what are they getting? Obviously, the results hinge on that. The OS hinges on that, don't you see? It hinges on that. I've shown you on treatment death is only, you know, half of one percentage point. You still have a few more percentage points you're picking up along the way. Uh, second malignancy, I think, is a problem. It still doesn't account for all the percentage point differences. Um, there is still a difference in Hodgkin's death. Uh, and so I think that's where the post-protocol therapy, the second malignancy question is, you know, could you have gotten away with less bleo? That's why we need, I think, a confirmatory study with a rathal protocol or, or less bleo or something like that. And, and maybe, you know, a different strategy for people over the age of 60. I've never been a big fan. And I think many centers just don't give them bleo anyway. And so this seems sort of like a delinquent control arm, if that is what, in fact, your standard practice. Nobody's catching these math errors. Nobody's looking at it like this. Back to my original point. Yes, of course. This is why. When you, if, if you watch this video and this is the first time you've ever thought of these things and you want to write it up, yeah, of course, you need to cite the video at a minimum uh, because you didn't see it before. I mean, isn't that – I don't know. I don't know. Do we have to have like an ethics 101, write your own papers, acknowledge where you got ideas, this is the academy, okay? You know, is this is a good ethics 101? All right. Those are my thoughts. Echelon 1, very provocative. I've been waiting for it. It also goes to show why, oh – why didn't you comment on it when somebody tweeted a slide from the back of a lecture hall? Why are we why are we disseminating scientific information in this atrocious way, back of the lecture hall, um, taking photographs? This is honestly, honestly, our system. If you really think about it, this paper, our system, the way people can't handle feedback. Oh my God, the my, I worked on the trial. You can't say anything bad about. I mean, all this kind of stuff. This is not a culture of scientific inquiry, of debate, of understanding things. This is a culture of being all extensions of the corporate conglomerate of Seattle Genetics. Uh, uh, you know, they're basically puppeting the presentations. They're generously funding ASCO. They're generously funding the investigators. Their exhibit in the in the auditorium is so big and the carpet is so plush you can twist your ankle in it. Uh, you know, these companies are giving away free coffee and doctors are lining up like it, like, 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 like they've never got anything free in their life, like they don't get paid. You know, it's really kind of a spectacle. Uh, and this is not the way in which you would actually interrogate these data. These data are, we're talking about billions or tens of billions of dollars in global financial implications. Um, these data need to be deeply interrogated. Your post-protocol therapy is shit. It's a shit table. The numbers don't add up. How the hell did that happen? What are you doing? Those are my thoughts. Okay. If you like this video, you need to do like, subscribe, comment, leave a message below. Plenary session, you listen on the audio feed. You miss so much, people. Come on. Get on the video. Get on the video on this. All right. Until next time.